Hello and welcome to another episode of the CJSR Edition, a program that presents high and low culture through interviews, documentaries, and sound. My name is Matt Hergy. Thanks for tuning in. When Roberta Laurie's aunt, a woman that she describes as an intelligent individual, described the Alberta oil sands as, quote, ethical, Laurie knew she had to do something. The conversation came after the publication of 2010's Ethical Oil, the best-selling and controversial book by Canadian lawyer, lobbyist, and journalist Ezra Levant. In the book, Levant argues that when compared with other crude producers like Saudi Arabia, the Canadian petroleum industry is more ethical based on the environment, conflict, economic, and social justice. After her discussion with her aunt, Lori, who is now a professor of communication studies at McEwen University, she took a step back and decided that instead of simply being against everything that Levant writes, she needed to evaluate what he's writing and how it's being perceived. Does he have a point? Or was he just spinning the facts? Seeking answers to these questions led Lori to the MA in Environmental Education and Communication program at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. It was there that she focused her research on the ethical oil debate. The end result of her research is a thesis entitled Framing Ethical Oil, Shaping the Canadian Media Response to the Alberta Oil Sands, and it offers an in-depth philosophical analysis of the ways in which media pundits frame their biases in ways which promote divisive and ideological conversations. A little while back, I had the opportunity to sit down with Lori in the CJSR studios to talk about her research. And that's where we'll start this week's episode of the CJSR edition. Coming up next, my conversation with McEwen University professor Roberta Lori about the implications of calling oil ethical. Roberta, thank you very much for coming down today. Well, thank you for having me, Matt. I want to start with uh, a question that is maybe uh, that maybe you're currently researching right now. What is, what is the best way that we can navigate the debate around the Alberta oil sands? Well, I think that there has been a lot of divisive rhetoric surrounding the oil sands. Um, you know, there, there have been uh, a number of pundits that that have come forward and uh, rather than engaging in dialogue, it seems to be, um, you know, there's a lot of simply hurling the insults and, and um, you know, not a lot of constructive uh, talk has gone on. And so I really think that what we need to do here is have open and honest conversation about solutions to our, our challenges within the oil sands. Uh, you know, uh, environmentalists should be talking to industry, and industry should be engaging environmentalists. We should be talking together because this is our land. What is it in particular about oil sands extraction in Canada that uh, seems to elicit such a such a divisive debate around it? Is there something uh, unique about that that we don't? that we don't see in other forms of political debate? I think that there is just so much money uh, wrapped up in the oil sands. Uh, you know, I've, I've lived in Alberta nearly my entire life, and I recognize that when, in one way or another, the vast majority of uh, Albertans' livelihoods depend upon the oil sands um, or, or oil and gas in, in, in some... Um, form or another. Now, I don't necessarily think that it has to be that way, but that's the reality at this particular time. And so I think it becomes an easy target for manipulation. Uh, people who, you know, have certain agendas, whether that's, uh, you know, making money or, um, 
uh, promoting their own careers. I, I think that it's it's an easy topic to divide Albertans on. Mm. Um, I think that money is at the heart of it. Okay, well, let's... Uh... Let's go back in time to uh, Ezra Levant's 2010 book, uh, Ethical Oil, The Case for Canada's Oil Sands, which has a very loaded uh, title there, uh, Ethical Oil. Can you describe what, uh, what Ezra Levant meant when he said ethical oil? I can. Uh, you know, in a way, I think that Pairing the two words is genius, in a sense. When we think of the word ethical, uh, we think good, we think morally responsible, uh, we think doing the right thing, we think warm and fuzzy thoughts is a very Canadian word. So when you pair a word like ethical with a word like oil, um, and, you, and you connect the two words together enough, association develops. And so now, when I think about, you know, ethical oil, that's a good thing, isn't it? And so it becomes this juggernaut of a frame. Mm. Describe what you mean when you use the word frame. Well, I can tell you um, there's a particular cognitive linguist, uh, George Lakoff, who writes extensively on framing. Uh, and uh, he describes frames as mental structures that shape the way we see the world. So frames, in essence, are the associations that we make between words and ideas. And um, we have mental associations with virtually every word. And, and they're subconscious. We don't necessarily realize that we're, when we hear a word, we're thinking about something else. So for example, say you say the word um, sunshine to me. Maybe what I, the image that I get in my head is a day at the beach or um, playing with my children outside. Those are the images that come perhaps to my mind. How did Ezra Levant's uh, use of the word ethical oil, ethical oil change the framework then for how Canadians as a whole think about bitumen extraction? Well, when I analyzed, uh, when I analyzed his book, I looked for themes, overarching themes, themes that kept arising within the text. And so these were themes that uh, Levant has associated with the term. And so now these are themes that come up when, when people think of the Alberta oil sands. And so to give you a couple of examples, um, the one that's perhaps the most associated with his writings and his speaking um, is what I like to call the we versus they theme. Hmm. The we versus they theme um, is, is essentially a relativistic theme um, or argument. The, the thinking goes this way. Uh, you know, Canada is an ethical society. Uh, in Canada, we treat our workers well. In Canada, people get paid a fair wage. In Canada, we avoid discrimination against minority groups. Um, we have equal treatment between men and women. Uh, Canada is an ethical society. Um, other oil-producing countries, such as Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, uh, maybe Venezuela. Saudi Arabia, in particular, um, has, a, has a history of human rights abuses. Um, in Levant's book, he claims that Saudi Arabia exports jihad around the world. So these are negative associations. So his argument goes something like this. If we have to buy oil anyway, let's buy it from... Uh, Canadian sources, because Canadian sources are obviously much more ethical than um, Saudi Arabian or Nigerian sources. What is the fallacy behind that linkage? I understand that there must be one, and uh, <laughs> I, I can certainly come to my own presumptions on it, but I was wondering what your perspective on it is. I think the main problem with an argument like that is, is, is you skirt around the main issue. You, you miss the point. And uh, I, I'm sure that some of your listeners uh, know of Gio Takic, uh, author of Will the Real Alberta Please Stand Up? And I spoke to Gio about ethical oil, and I, I loved his analogy because um, Gio's quite forthright. 
And he said this to me. He said, so if you kill 10 people and I kill only five, according to Levant's argument, I'm more ethical than you. So I think that pretty much sums it mm -hmm. up. Yeah. So is there another example that you can offer in Ezra Levant's book, how he uh, pairs things maybe in an inappropriate way? Absolutely. Throughout his book, Levant attacks um, any groups who oppose oil sands extraction, um, even groups that simply propose their responsible development. And by groups, I mean ENGOs, Aboriginal groups, research institutes, even just plain Canadian, concerned Canadian citizens. So really anyone who doesn't, uh, who isn't on board with full-scale extraction of the oil sands comes under um, his criticism. And throughout the book, he heaps this, this um, derision and, and sarcasm on top of oil sands opponents and critics. Uh, you know, in, in, in one quote that I found quite memorable, he says he calls Greenpeace um, a, a collection of unethical televangelists milking their congregants. And he even suggests that environmentalists in Saudi Arabia are somehow in cahoots by describing them as a loose coalition and claiming that they have a brilliant symbiosis. So, you know, he also, um, he, center, he also centers his, his attack around Aboriginal groups. Um, Andrew Nikoforic comes under scrutiny. The Pembina Institute. Um, at, at one point, he actually criticizes a Pemina press release um, in which the research group projects the loss of more than 160 million boreal forest bird, birds to the development of the oil sands. And um, in a particularly memorable quote, he imagines Dr. Evil raising his pinky while saying the word million um, and likens the re Institute's research methodology to that of Dr. Doolittle. So this is, you know, very belittling. And ultimately, it's meant to distract from the Pemina Institute's credibility. That's all it is. It's an attack. And um, this is not helpful. Uh, the, the other thing that I, I really found disturbing is throughout his con uh, criticism of various environmental groups, um, going back to uh, you know, Greenpeace and other environmental groups that allegedly are in cahoots with Saudi Arabia, um, you know, he, he, he frames anyone who is opposed to the development of the oil sands um, as radical or extremist, and I feel as though this has really been picked up by uh, certain people within the Canadian government. And, and this is very troubling because you see examples of it. Um, you know, for example, just last year, uh, Natural Resources Minister Joe Oliver claimed that radical groups, this was, um, this was when discussing the proposed Northern Gateway pipeline, um, Joe Oliver claimed that radical groups were trying to block trade and undermine Canada's economy. Well, that is in no way helpful to dialogue within the country, um, this, this divisive nature of these attacks. Well, Ezra Levant is a... Uh, he's, I don't want to say... A, I hate using the word popular... But he is a well-known name on the media landscape. And this isn't a media criticism interview, but I'm curious, what is it about Canada's media landscape? Or perhaps what is it about uh, the state of dialogue in this country that makes derision and sarcasm and belittling so effective as a mechanism to change popular opinion? You know, I really don't know the answer to that question. But it's something that I have been struggling with for some time now. Um, I almost hate to bring up this man's name, but uh, <clears throat> Rob Ford comes to mind, as do some other figures as well. Um, you know, Don Cherry has been immensely popular for many, many years. An entire generation of hockey fans have grown up idolizing Don Cherry. And really, what is Don Cherry but a bully? You know, um, he's, he's this 
caricature, really, of a bully. And we get a kick out of him, and people love to watch him. And it's almost as if we popularized this ideal of the average guy being a bully. And somehow that's okay. And I don't think it is. But I don't know why um, that has become culturally acceptable in some way. And again, of course, you see it in, in characters like, like Rob Ford as well. You know, he was, he was uh, the everyman to Torontonians. And I, I mean, he's now kind of... Um, stepped over that line, but even now his popularity hasn't really waned. And so what is with that? Why is this behavior acceptable? What I struggle with the most is that it, it, it in other countries, in my analysis of other countries, beyond maybe uh, beyond maybe the United States, it doesn't seem like it's, it's that way. So I'm wondering if there's something particularly Canadian about... Uh, uh, championing the everyman bully. Yeah, and again, I, I really don't know the answer to that. I wonder if it is something that has come up from the States. You know, we do seem to be um, just, you know, that five to ten years behind the current trend in the States, which is a little sad for me to say, but it's it seems to be something that, that a trend that we see over and over again, and, and certainly we've seen it down in the States with uh, guys like... Um, Glenn Beck and, and Rush Limbaugh, we, we see this, this championing of, uh, of the every man, and in, in the case of Sarah Palin, the every woman, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's a wonderful um, ideal, but not when it goes to the point of, of championing ignorance and bullying. What occurs to me about all of those people that you mentioned is they're all uh, people whose political ideologies are more to the left more to the right wing of the spectrum who comes out ahead when when this dialogue is is advanced is it is it conservatives and and why are they using this tactic it seems to be a tactic that uh, the conservative uh, right wing uh, particularly radical right wing has embraced I think it's unfortunate that it's working so well. Um, when you leave logic and reason at the door, it has unintended consequences, perhaps. Uh, we've seen an attack on our scientific community here in Canada. Um, we've seen this um, trend in Canadian politics uh, that seems to lack reason. Um, you know, even even the policies of, of our current Prime Minister Stephen Harper um, tend to diminish the importance of of science and logic. And I don't know why that that is, but it does seem to be working. Unfortunately, is there a particular link that you could draw between conservative uh, right wing bullying and the? Uh the defunding of of environmental programs or the belittling of uh, more progressive approaches to to uh, society. Well, I think that part of the problem is that the right wing has been on the ball for a lot longer than the left wing. Um, you know, the right wing generally has a lot more access to funds, uh, to corporate money. Uh, you know, we see that in, a, in Alberta. Uh, can we even call Alberta a democracy anymore when we've had the same political party get into the provincial government for how many years? For decades. Uh, and now we see this, this trivialization of knowledge and science. Um, you know, I think personally that it's linked to the perpetuation of ignorance when you... Um, promote ignorance within a population, you can gain control. You're listening to the CJSR edition on CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, and around the world at cjsrnews.com. My guest today is McEwen University professor Roberta Laurie. Her thesis, which was written at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia, is called Framing Ethical Oil, Shaping the Canadian Media Response to the Alberta oil sands. 
So I guess if we could go full circle then back to Ezra Levant's 2010 book, what what were the tangible effects of of his sort of tactics of derision and sarcasm, and how did it change the landscape of uh, of how we as Canadians perceive of bitumen extraction? You know that that question could go in a multiple <laughs> multitude of directions. Um, I think that the kind of messaging that Levant promoted within his book has been problematic. And I think that, you know, this, this kind of messaging has been perpetuated by uh, various right-wing organizations like Sun Media, as well as uh, Ethical Oil. Um, the originally started as a, as a, a blog site uh, set up to promote Levant's book, but now it's become, it's become something else. Um, it seems to be trying to keep the idea of ethical oil alive within the Canadian public's uh, memory. And, uh, of course, Levant has uh, refused to disclose the sources of funding for that organization. But the kind of uh, messaging that uh, Levant has promoted uh, through both his book and... and uh, you know, his various interviews, as well as his Sun Media program and ethicaloil.org, has been very pl- problematic. It hasn't maybe driven uh, the conversation about the oil sands, but you see its, its, its trail of breadcrumbs, if you will. For example, I'm, I'm going to go back to the environmental groups. After the publication of uh, Levant's book, it did seem as though um, it appeared that the uh, conservative government was much more um, emboldened in its its negative talk towards environmental groups. Maybe this would have happened anyway. I can't say for sure. But it has become commonplace to hear uh, environmentalists referred to as eco-terrorists, radicals, extremists. And this is this is very troubling. Because in my mind, uh, the Canadian public has been primed with this message. When you prime an audience in that way, it's much more easily easy to manipulate them in the future. For example, um, some of some of your audience might know that um, an access to information request uncovered documents showing that the RCMP and CSIS had identified so-called extremist environmental groups and Aboriginal protesters as a potential source of domestic terrorism. And of course, this justified the monitoring and infiltration of these groups. Well, these are people. These are people just like you and me. And we supposedly live within a democratic society where it is our right to challenge ideas. It is our right as Canadian citizens to question how the government is being run to question policies, and yet because certain individuals are questioning these specific policies and the government doesn't like it, they are now being labeled with these volatile um, labels, uh, radicals, extremists. How is that helpful to dialogue? And, and really it is very divisive within, within society. If this divisiveness continues, what do you perceive of the results in 10 to 20 years? I think that's a really uh, difficult question to answer. I think that, um, you know, Canada will probably be a very different place in 10 to 20 years. That's a long time. Um, and, And I think that in 10 to 20 years... Uh, we will have come a long way one, one way or another. We will either have embraced research and development of sustainable energy sources or we'll have gone the other way and, um, you know, become a petroleum state. Uh, I hope that isn't the case. So depending upon, uh, depending upon a number of factors, you know, it, it's really it's difficult to say. I, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I want to leave you with uh, the final word here. Is there any final thoughts that you want to leave us with? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I'd like to say this. You know, words are important. Words uh, 
have meaning. And uh, one of the presenters at, at the conference this weekend said something that, that left an impression on me. She said this, Judy Garber said this, words, narratives, and truths are contestable. And I believe that when those uh, words speak mistruths, when we see um, misinformation being perpetuated, in, whether it's in the media or whether it's, uh, you know, around the dinner table, it's our responsibility to contest them. And so if you hear mistruths being spoken, stand up and tell the truth. That was my conversation with Roberta Lori, a professor in the Bachelor of Communication Studies program at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta. Lori is currently writing her second book, Touching This Storied Land, Navigating the Narratives and Debate that Surround the Alberta Oil Sands. From CJSR FM 88.5, you're listening to the CJSR edition. Up next, we continue our conversation on the legacy of the Canadian residential school system. Stay with us. In the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Alberta National Event, that took place in early 2014, there has been an increased focus on the legacies of Canadian residential schools. It was through the residential school system that Aboriginal children were taken from their families and homes and then placed in boarding schools under a legally enforced mandate with the intention of teaching English and the skills needed to succeed in mainstream Canadian society. However, there was very little in the way of teaching at these schools, as mismanagement and lack of care led them to become centers where disease spread and children endured physical, emotional, and sexual violence. These traumatic experiences continue to reverberate through generations, while contributing to the destruction of Aboriginal languages and the breakdown of the family unit. Last year, I sat down with Charlene Bearhead, National Project Coordinator for Project Apart, and Raymond Yakalaya, a filmmaker and residential school survivor. We spoke about the historical context of residential schools in Canada. Uh, my name is Charlene Bearhead, and I'm the National Coordinator for Project Apart and National Day of Healing and Reconciliation. Uh, my name is Raymond Yakalaya. I come from the Dene Nation of the Northwest Territories. My hometown is Tulita, Northwest Territories, and I'm a survivor of the Grolier Hall uh, system in the Inuvik Northwest Territories. I'm also a filmmaker, and I'm working with Charlene on a project that will be celebrating the lives of the boys that committed suicide. My conversation with Charlene and Raymond made me consider how residential schools fit into the larger context of Aboriginal Canadian history, and how, by focusing only on residential schools, we miss how important the larger implications of reconciliation between settler and Aboriginal Canadians can be. I mean, really, I guess if we wanted to talk about where it really started, yeah. it started with contact, wouldn't you say, Raymond? I mean, I'm going to say that it started with contact. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> um, absolutely escalated when you saw governments arrive we know if you take a look at the Métis people, when it was people, just people that were arriving from Europe, um, you know, in the beginnings and doing their fur trade or doing their exploration, what, you know, the small sort of things that they were doing at that time, the people did okay with the people. You know, it was the first people of this country that really, I mean, the Europeans wouldn't have survived. We know that. The Métis people came 
from that union and that coming together. But when governments arrived with their agendas and decided that it was going to be, um, I guess, more of a, a government agenda, I guess, driving what was happening here, I would say it really started right there. Because when you take a look at the history and legacy of residential schools, it's not a simple, straightforward, uh, you know, one reason. We look at aggressive assimilation on the part of the government. We look at the grab for land on the part of the government. We look at the desire to build the railway. We look at the, gov- the church's agendas for converting people to Christianity. So and we don't have enough time to talk about all of the different reasons and, and all the ways, I would say, that it manifested itself really in the beginning. For me, what I think is that was the grab, obviously off the bat, was the grab for resources. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I think, going back to my days when, you know, um, the Europeans first came. I remember the story really distinctly in high school when John Cabot and they were fishing off the Grand Banks and they could not believe all the fish that they got from the nets. That just blew them away because Europe was already, they already had uh, cut down a large part of their trees. People were, were like boat people in this time, you know, because they destroyed the resources. So com- Europeans coming to North America, it was all of like paradise coming over again. And it really comes clear in that story when they, John Cabot's men, I think, on the Grand Banks put his nets in and they were full, they could not believe. And then they looked at the land, the land was as good as it was when it was first made. Mm-hmm. And that was just only on top of the land, what they could see, and nothing was spoiled. But the only thing between the uh, Europeans and, and the resources and the land was the First Nations. So um, I think that's really where, where the conflict began. When Europeans arrived, the land was still intact because that was the teachings of the first people of this country. You never take more than what you need. You never take anything without giving something back. Reciprocity is key. And to everything that's living, not just to one another, but to the earth, to everything that's living. And when you take a look at the ideologies of the first people, everything has a spirit. Everything's living. So you think about that not only did the Europeans not look at that and realize we have something to learn here that could have helped us not have to come here if we had understood that, not only did they not recognize that, but then through residential schools, taking that away by by destroying that. I mean, that was the entire goal, was to make sure that you destroyed any knowledge, any connection to those teachings, to those values, anything that made you Indian, anything that made you, uh, and I mean, really, we can't even use another term for that period of time because that's the only term they used. But when they looked at that, so not only do you see the taking away the teachings, but so many of the teachings can't be translated well into English, right? I mean, they're within the, the language of the people. So when you kill the language, there's not a really accurate way to be able to carry that forward. When you kill the teachings, when you separate the children, and then when you kill the children, because <clears throat> the life in those schools ended many, many, many lives. I often think one of the great, greatest gifts that we had in North America one of the greatest resources which the Europeans failed to see, and it was right in front of them, was the people themselves. They didn't know our people knew everything about this land. We were very strong with it, very intimate with this land. But instead, we, they put us on the opposite side of them as something like a wild animal to be uh, corralled, Mm -hmm. to be tamed. I think the residential schools were one of the, the things where they wanted to assimilate our people and I last week I was with Charlene and I, one of the deputy ministers of Indian Affairs Duncan, Duncan Campbell Scott mm-hmm. puts in a report that he says that uh, that uh, they were a lot of the native kids were dying in at residential schools especially in Saskatchewan where some schools had 25% of students dying of tuberculosis one school had 75% dying and he think, and, and, and this Duncan Campbell Scott says 
This is geared towards the, the, the final solution of our Indian problem. This was a man who was supposed to be working for a department that's supposed to help Native people. Duncan Campbell Scott was born in 1862 and served as a bureaucrat for the Department of Indian Affairs in 1905, becoming the head of the Department of Indian Affairs from 1913 to 1932. He oversaw and carried out the assimilationist policies of the Canadian government without question, thoroughly believing that Aboriginal people had to forsake their traditions, customs, and languages and submit to Canadian settler culture. Scott was perversely successful at his work. He was able to increase enrollment and attendance at the school. The number of First Nations enrolled in any school rose from 11,303 in 1912 to 17,163 by 1932. This could have been as a result of his work in making attendance at residential schools mandatory within Bill 14 of the Indian Act. Or it could have been because of his decision to tie school funding with the number of children enrolled. This last factor encouraged schools to enroll as many children as possible, including those who were too sick to attend and ended up spreading disease among other students. And by the time Duncan Campbell Scott, you know, um, came up with the term final solution and, and talked about killing the Indian and the child, that was already, you know, I mean, that was really in the era around 1905 to 19, the mid-1920s, but already even in the 1870s, you know, when Nicholas Flood Davin went to the United States already looking to clear, you know, really to clear things out of the way um, you know, around the time of Confederation, and really it, it's almost like clearing the land, but clear-cutting instead of trees, it was people. And, um, you know, going down to the States, and when you take a look at the Flood Davin report, it's so calculated. You know, you actually have calculations, financial calculations in the report, and the government of Canada taking a look at what the Americans did in the boarding schools. They called them boarding schools instead of residential schools there. And looking at a couple of principles that, first of all, day schools don't work. And it was stated right in that report, the report that was called the Report on Industrial Schools for Indians and Half-Breeds. That's the actual official name of the report. And when, you know, um, Nicholas Flood Davin goes down to the States, takes a look at what they're doing, and come, comes back and says day schools don't work because if you don't remove the children from the influence of the wigwam was the term he was used because he was in Pennsylvania. But stating, so calculated, we're talking about little children and talking about how you have to remove them from the influence of the wigwam, that being their home, their families, their protocols, their practices, their values, because otherwise the aggressive assimilation won't be as effective, as rapid. You know, Duncan Campbell Scott thought that it was going to take one, maximum two generations to fully assimilate Aboriginal people. He had no idea that it was going to take that long and it was going to be that expensive. And when you take a look at the calculations, the discussion was, do we do like the Americans and actually take responsibility for operating the schools ourselves? Or do we find a cheaper way to do it? So engaging the churches and contracting churches was a cheaper way to be able to kill the Indian and the child. This final solution, and as Raymond said, this isn't the only act. This is in a series of events and activities that the government undertook. And that's why you know they came up with the term final solution, because people weren't lining up for the Gradual Civilization Act. People didn't choose to do that. So it got more and more aggressive. So I think when they use the term aggressive assimilation, sort of indicating that it's very active, but really it was aggressive in every aspect. Brutal assimilation. Nicholas Flood Davin was a predecessor to Duncan Campbell Scott, who penned a highly influential report and convinced Prime Minister John A. Macdonald to implement residential school programs. 
And it's always amazing to me that when you think about it, when you look at what has happened to the First Nations people of this country, the Inuit, the first people of this country, and still today, <clears throat> you know, 2013, well over 200 years, well over, really, when you take a look at contact, 400 years into it, you still have the first people of this country trying to protect resources for all Canadians. Because when you take a look at the navigable waters issue that comes up with the omnibus bill, all of those issues about protecting the land, it's about protecting the land for everybody in Canada. So you, it's amazing to me that you see the first people treated so brutally and you still have people that come forward because they still practice their own protocols of kindness and sharing and not of ownership and control to still be saying we need to work together to protect the land and for everyone. Goes all the way, as you said, goes all the way back all that all those years and has some really macro level effects, but perhaps Raymond, you could talk about the really, really personal effects that the residential school system had on, on not only you, but uh, the thousands of other people that went through it. Well, first of all, from what I know about residential school systems, so we look at it from the beginning. My cousin did a study on this. I think he was here at the U of A. And he said the residential school systems were, were patterned on military prisons. So that's where we start. So when you go to a residential school, I was 10. My first year, my brother Norman was 6. All of a sudden, you become a number. It's run by... The Catholic, uh, the Catholics, the Diocese of Mackenzie, the the Oblates, and I, I guess I guess the Grey Nuns. So all of a sudden, Raymond Yakalai becomes. They sign you a number, like in the jail, two o six. That was my number. My brother was two o five, two o four, and two o three. So all your clothes are marked. Everybody wears the same clothes. All your clothes are marked. So when they come back from laundry, we have to fold clothes because we have jobs that we have to do there. So if they say 206, everybody says Raymond. They know my number. We know there's maybe 70 boys from all over the, the Western Arctic, from Fort Norman, now Toledo up to Saks Harbor, Cambridge Bay, Copper Mine, Holman Island, Joe Haven, all those places. So all of a sudden, we're now sudden, all of a sudden, I'm not Raymond anymore. I'm 206. That, I'm a number now. So that's how we'll be known for that 10 months that I'm there. So we get up in the morning, we pray. We're always praying. I don't know why we prayed so much. Turn me against Catholicism. And uh, and you have rules. That there's a certain amount of times you got to do certain things. But it's always praying. And uh, and I think the thing of it is is, is we were we were we were looked after by nuns that didn't want to look after 70 young rambunctious boys. And uh, we also, our school was infamous for having four convicted sex pedophiles in there, sexual predators, amongst the junior boys and senior boys. So, you know, God knows what happened. But, you know, they, they don't want you to speak your language. You get hit for that. They tell you don't speak your language. It's mostly French-Canadian nuns. So when they don't want us to understand what they're saying in English, they switch to French. So we don't understand, right? So, you know, they tell you everything about your culture is no good. Your language is devil language. Everything. Don't listen to what your people have to say. That's how they, they approach it, right? Everything that we have as Dena people and any value people, it's no good. It's taken away from you. They don't want to hear nothing about it. It's no good. That's the word, the final word. That's the way they feel about it. So in, in terms of what they've tried to do is you know, now with days we see the results that we're losing our language. One of the reserves in Alberta here, the Tsutena, I think they're down to, they say, less than 50 speakers. So it's on the verge of we're going to lose a whole beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, source of knowledge from the Tsutena. And they forget, they, they don't, I, from what I understand, my contacts are, they don't even remember their, con their creation story but they're losing it. And uh, how do we save it? These are some of the things, as I was mentioned, that was one of the greatest resources. We should be saving our languages from here, our knowledge from here, because we have knowledge that's deep, goes into medical, that goes into every type of 
you know, traveling by stars, architecture, it goes that way. We're losing this at a rapid rate. So many, many ways, this dividing the native kids from, as Charlene would say, the wigwam, was quite successful. You know, it was, was paid for and bought for by the Canadian government, and the churches were their allies in this one whole thing. They succeeded to some degree. So we, here we are in 2013, looking at the remnants of our nation, saying, what in the hell are we going to do? We came just like we came out of a, as, as Premier Harper had said, it was a cultural, it was a genocide against the First Nations. Our country was at war with us, innocent people. I find that really sadly interesting. Um, the fact that we think about residential schools as a part of our past, but it still has a tremendous uh, effect of our present and <coughs> will continue to have an effect on our future. Well, and I think that that is such an important point because in a couple of different ways we look at that. First of all, and people do think it's way back in the past. First of all, you can be 25 years old in this country and still be a residential school survivor because the last school in Saskatchewan closed in 1996. That's very, very young. So when we hear people say, oh, I don't fall back on 10th generation excuses, I am shocked, first of all, that people are so ignorant to the truth and the reality and the history of this country. We're living it right now. So we have people who've gone to residential schools who are very young, and we have intergenerational survivors who come from families where there are two, three, four, five, six generations of people in their family who've gone to residential school. But then you think about people who were repeatedly, repeatedly abused. The fact that people can get out of bed in the morning and put one foot in front of the other is, is heroic in many situations and unbearable for some. And I mean, Raymond knows that all, all, all too well. In, in my family, I called, uh, I, since talking with, with uh, Charlene, um, there were six members of my family, brothers included, cousins, that were, uh, appears to be sexually abused in the, in the Grolier Hall. Uh, residential, it's, it was a residence, and and I have good friends that committed suicide because of their experiences there. We see today the jails full of First Nations people. That has to be talked about. We see today social services, all the kids that are given up, they're into the white man system of childcare. There's a lots of abuse going on there. I told Charlene the other day, our next thing is going to be the sexual abuse that comes out of the, the social services. I know it already. I've heard friends of mine talk about it who have kids in there who grew up in that social system. It's all that residue. I was talking to my brother, Carl, and he was talking to two boys in jail. And he was talking to them, and they were angry at their dad. That kid made suicide, right? Because from what I can gather, they wasn't a dad for them, right? So their dad was no more there when they were growing up. And they were downhearted and crying, asking my brother, what was our dad like? And they want to know what he was like. What, was he a good man or this or that? And Carl had to say, you know, he was a good man. But there were things that happened to him in, in the hostile system of Grolier Hall that nobody knew at the time that predators would be there. And we had four in the span of 20 years, all, all that convicted. And um, there's, so there's a lot of damage that spreads everywhere. Not only can you imagine if your son committed suicide, how will the mom and dad feel, the grandparents, uncle, aunts, brothers, sisters, mm -hmm. wife, girlfriend, children? friends. It just sends shockwaves through everybody. And it's something that is so hard to talk about, especially sexual abuse, that they don't know what to do. Who knows what to do? We don't know what to do. And uh, 
So it really, it's really cast a big, dark shadow over a lot of the people. And I, I think what we, what I see more than anything else, and I pray for this, is that our people will come out of it, you know, in the good side. Both been sick. Yeah. <laughs> Give your editor a good job of cutting this out of here. Of course, it's me. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay. There you go. There you go. I, I, you know what I like. I feel sad for my country, in many ways. In this way, to put its own first citizens through this on nothing but it's crap. Let's call it for what it is. Uh, and I, I feel sad because I think the First Nations, when they went into things with the government into treaties and stuff did so with a good heart, with an open heart. We never, First Nations have never broken a treaty. Never. If you look in the United States, the same thing. It's always been the American governments. And First Nations, and if they say to you, I won't war no more forever against you, they'll have a really big conference about it amongst themselves, because that's a big thing, right? If no more forever, that's a, forever's a long word. So when we take things like that, we take it really, really seriously. Okay, can we agree to that? It may take some time, but okay, we agree to that. So they, they take those type of things seriously. To us, with the, with the government, and I go back to Treaty Number 11 when I know that the best, it, it, the government, as they were making treaty to our people, were breaking the treaty. Uh, I'll tell you a little simple story. That in 1920, they hid oil in Norman Wells on my grandparents' land. They knew it was there. The Denon knew about it. It's been flowing out of the ground for hundreds of years, so they used to use the oil to patch the canoes and oil for the dog sled runners so it could help them when it gets warm. Like this kind of weather, you need to, to pull on the wood for the sleigh. So they knew about that. The canoes, they always talk about the canoes, our canoes are always black at the bottom because it seals. So when the government heard, uh, they heard there was the oil resource, Illegally, they sent a crew from Imperial Oil up to drill, and they've hit it after, geez, I don't know how far they went down, 700 feet. It's nothing. They hit the main, it's the oldest oil, oil field in, in, in Canada, is Norman Wells oil field. And all of a sudden, they, they're starting to abuse people. They're kicking people out of their homes. They don't compensate them. They push their homes over the riverbank. So these are, you know, things that are happening right now. A civilized people who will know about law, right? but apparently the law doesn't pertain to First Nations. In 1920, 1921, we're still not citizens of our own country. So, you know, there's a lot of things that, that happened from there. But when it came time to the treaty, the Denon were really interested in a couple things. One of the things that they were interested in, because they're hunting people, they did not want laws in 1921 that infringed on their hunting from the land. They wanted to hunt at every animal, Every bird, every season, that's how they had always lived. And they wanted that law to be there. The white man says, the government says, yes, well, you have that, that right. Now, we didn't know we were being hoodwinked or lied to till 1960, when a gentleman in Yellowknife, another Denny, by the name of Mike Siki, shot a duck. He had been in hospital in Edmonton with tuberculosis. He went for a couple of years. His family was in... They needed game. He's the main hunter, and all of a sudden, the family doesn't have a dad, so they're on welfare. He went out and put some traps in, and he was collecting his traps. He had a shotgun with him. Ducks were flying. He shot two ducks, and the, he he had one when the, the RCMP guy stopped him out of Yellowknife and said, "I have to arrest you because uh, you shot a, game, a duck out of season." This is 1960. Mike Seeky says, "Well, why are you doing that?" I didn't break any law. Oh yes, you broke a law. You, you, you cannot hunt bird, game birds out of season. So Michael says, well, I didn't break a law. They go to the court. So Mike gets up and he says, the judge says, how, how do you know you didn't break the law? He says, because in 1921, he said, when the treaty commissioner came up here, they hired me to hire, they hired me to be their translator. There's someone to talk to the who understood English and who understood Klincho language, Dogrib. And I was the guy they hired. So everything that the treaty commissioner said 
to our people. Every question that our chief had to the treaty commissioner had to go through me. So I know what exactly was being said. And the chief asked about this game bird, so it was a big thing for them. And the treaty commissioner says, yeah, there will, there will be no law for that. When the court case came out in Yellowknife, the, the prosecutor said, well, there was a law made, an international game bird treaty between Canada, Mexico, and the United States in 1917. They were concerned Mexico, I guess Canada, and the United States about game birds being shot in the springtime. That would be ducks, geese, swans, whatever people would eat, right? So they, they made an international, it's called a Migratory Birds Convention Act in 1917. They signed it without telling the native people. So when, when, they, when they were making treaty with the Dena, they lied because they knew that they couldn't shoot these game birds, but to get the land and at the resources, they lied. And so that's where Mike Siki found himself. And we didn't know this, right? No one tells the den anything until we, we have to test it. And so that's what I'm saying. You have those type of things that happen. And it's all about resources. The Supreme Court eventually ruled against Michael, even though this implied that the treaty commissioner had negotiated in bad faith. Because of this, the federal government eventually moved in the 1990s to change the convention and allow for spring subsistence hunting for Aboriginal people. Now, the interesting thing about the timing of that, <clears throat> when Raymond tells that story, is in 1920, when that's happening way up in Norman Wells, down in the, you know, the more southern areas of Canada, across the prairies, and right through from Ontario, that's the year that Duncan Campbell Scott made it mandatory for all First Nation children all Indians under the Indian Act from age 5 to 15 to go to residential schools. That's even 13 years after Dr. Peter Bryce did his report that he called a national crime. But uh, another thing that's very interesting, and Raymond, you know, hits it right on the head. It's about resources. Initially, the residential schools were only in the provinces, in the southern part of the country. But with the discovery of resources in the north, um, suddenly, in 1939, so you know, not long after what Raymond's talking about, Inuit people are suddenly Indians under the Indian Act. And now, suddenly, the Inuit children have to go to residential school, and the government comes forward and says, oh, well, we have a fiduciary responsibility to educate the Inuit now because it's under the Indian Act. But isn't that interesting that it completely aligns itself with the discovery of more and more resources in the North? The larger context that residential schools need to be placed within is this struggle for control over resources and land. For the first peoples of the land, the residential schools decimated language, family structure, and most tellingly, ways of knowing and engaging with the land. This is what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission attempts to bring to light. However, the larger struggle of who truly owns and who should benefit from the land and resources of Canada has yet to be addressed. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission only starts a very long and difficult discussion of how we as settler and Aboriginal Canadians live, profit from, and protect this land. Thank you to my guests, Charlene Bearhead, the National Director of Project of Heart, and Raymond Yakalaya, filmmaker, and residential school survivor. For more information, visit the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's website, trc.ca, or visit Project of Heart, a collaborative learning program about the history of Aboriginal people in Canada at projectofheart.ca. That's it for this week's episode of the CJSR Edition. Thanks for tuning in. I've been your host, Matt Hergy. This week's program was produced by myself with assistance from CJSR's associate producer, Roshni Nair, in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5, community-powered public radio from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. If you have any questions or feedback about this show or any of our archived episodes of the CJSR Edition, 
log on to our website, cjsrnews.com slash edition, or email news at cjsr.com. Once again, from everybody who worked on and contributed to this week's show, thank you very much for tuning in.